and welcome to Golden Grenades, a weekly podcast about birds with stories from those who worship them, all set within the joyful utopia of the end of the world. Each week, a special guest must choose five bird species and only five to join them in this environmental wasteland and then choose their favourite of all to go head-to-head with my favourite, the peregrine falcon. This week, my special guest is professional storyteller Malcolm Green. Malcolm is a founding member of A Bit Crack Storytellers, which has been going for about 35 years, and teaches storytelling to environmental studies students at Newcastle University. In the past, he has been a manager of a country park, a secondary school teacher, and a head teacher of a small school in Cameroon. He has created two touring performances inspired by birds, the second of which was a collaboration with his son Joshua and the British Trust for Ornithology. His main interest is working with both the arts and science to bring the more than human world into our lives. Hello, Malcolm. Welcome to Golden Grenades. How are you? I'm fine, Kit. Good to see you. Thanks so much for coming on. As you know, this podcast is based on the increasingly likely scenario, unfortunately, of an environmental collapse of unprecedented proportions. And you have the unenviable task of choosing just five bird species to survive with you in the resulting devastation. Then you must choose one, your best of all, to compete with my peregrine falcon in the golden grenades gratuitous grapple for avian glory. (laughs) Or something like that anyway. And you've chosen five bird species today that mean the most to you. And we'll come to those in a moment. But I just wondered how the past year of lockdowns has affected you and your storytelling. Well, as far as the storytelling goes, I I work with some friends. Um, We run a a monthly storytelling event and we've just gone online. And um, so now we still we've been running it for 30 years now and we haven't missed a month. It's not as convivial as being face-to-face, but we've been getting audiences from all over the world. In terms of our performances, last year, Josh and I had quite a lot of performances around the country of our Gong Cuckoo show, and they've obviously all been cancelled. Yeah, Yeah, that's a real shame. I I met you just over a year ago, I think, in uh, in my local village doing the the Gone Cuckoo show with Josh. And it's a fantastic show. And I'd persuaded you to come and do some of that performance at an event I'd planned for the launch of the Red 67 book. But like a lot of things, it never came to be. A lot of people have in the past year or so felt very sort of restricted, obviously, with lockdowns. But at the same time, a lot of people, some some of them for the first time, have started to appreciate the birds in their garden and through their windows and, and very much just seeing what they can from their four walls. And that reminded me of the story of the four naturalists and ornithologists that were trapped in a prisoner of war camp in Germany in 1941. And Derek Neiman wrote a book, Birds in a Cage, about those four men and how they studied the birds that they saw within the compound of, of their prison. And one of those men, John Buxton, intensively studied the first species that you're going to talk to us about today. So could you please tell us about bird number one? Bird number one. Yeah, my first bird is a, is a red start. It's number one because it goes way back for me and it also is very present now. So it links the many years of my life. I used to live in London. I was brought up in London. I used to cycle to school. And it was a seven-mile cycle ride, and part of it was through Richmond Park. And I noticed a pair of breeding red stars, and I was completely captivated by them. I mean, they look like they should be from a tropical country. They're so bright and beautiful with their 
flashing red tail. And I was very poor at school academically. I didn't like sport. And at the school I went to, we were supposed to be in the CCF, which I absolutely detested. It was basically in a uniform marching around a quad. <laughs> Two things happened. The Red Start was really a, a bit like your prisoners of war. It was an escape. I managed to persuade the headmaster to allow me to not do CCF. I think they were probably quite relieved. And instead, go bird watching. So myself and a friend on Monday afternoons when everybody else was cleaning their rifles went into Richmond Park and we watched birds. And one of them was this nesting pair of red stars. So this red star, these bless them, these beautiful creatures, they gave me a respite from that. And I then wrote it up and having, you know, through my life got sort of very poor exam results, I ended up winning the school biology prize for my study of the red star so it's 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 close to my heart <laughs> sweet bird it's given me some relief and some release yeah they've got a couple of old names haven't they the red tail fire tail and red flirt okay <laughs> pretty unusual description but for me i find that they're a bird that i have to seek out you know, the, even though I, I live in Northumberland, away from town, I, I have to specifically go and see. It's it's one of those ones that I have to go and hunt out every year with wood warblers and, you know, pied flycatchers. Fantastic birds. Well, it's a bit different because I'm living near Allendale and there's a pair of red starts which have nested the past three years about 10 minute walk from where my house is. And they've nested in the same old stunted ash tree for the past two years. And so one of the things lockdown offered me was opportunity to not feel guilty about sitting for hours <laughs> just watching the Red Star. You probably know Jeff Sample, the bird sound recordist. Yes. Um, I, I sort of mentioned to the, him about the Red Stars. We rattle it. It's not like a skylark or a song thrush. And he said, listen closer. And so that's quite early on in the season. And I listened again to my red start. And I noticed this beautiful warble coming after the trill. And it, in a way, the red start told, taught me to listen more deeply. Because beneath the, the kind of little jangle it does, there's this beautiful little warble and it mimics other birds. So you can tell what other birds are nesting by it, by the little phrases. So that gave me a, a special thing to watch out for and, a, and a, a reason to really listen more deeply than I had done before. Your fire tail, that comes from an old folk tale where the red star lived in Tirnano, the land of the gods, the land of the ever young and ask one of the gods in Tiananog if he could bring fire to human beings. And that time, human beings had no fire. So the god put a little brand into the tail of the red star, and he flew down to earth with the instructions he could only give fire to someone who was kind and generous. And, um, of course, he couldn't find a human being that was kind and generous. <laughs> oh. They were all fighting with each other. But anyway, he finds an old woman who helps him when he's really tired. And he says, are you kind and generous? She said, good Lord, no. I'm far too busy to be kind and generous. So we know who got the fire. It was the old woman who didn't see herself as kind and generous. Anyway, so that's one of the folk tales. That actually comes from the island of Isla, 
I've never been to Isla, but I thoroughly intend to. I was going to go there this year because I'm a, I'm a whiskey fan. So that's why I was going to uh, ah. make a pilgrimage there once and for all and also uh, see some of the wildlife. But that's a that's a great story. Lovely stuff. Right. Now then, let's move on to your second choice. Can you tell us about okay. bird number two? Bird number two. Two. So yeah, this is this was very tricky because I decided I wanted a moorland bird, and there was the lapwing and the curlew and the golden plover, and I ended up plumping for the for the lapwing. There's something about the lapwing which is to do with conviviality for me. There's something about the way it arrives in those flop wing flocks that it does in the spring, and circles the land and. Then they kind of fight with each other a little bit when they're making their territories, and then they get into that extraordinary display, as beautiful as any bird display you can ever imagine. It's so warming and joyful. And I wrote down for each bird something about them, a couple of words, and the words for lapwing for me were joy and conviviality. There was another reason why I chose the lapwing. And it was because I remember when we lived in London, going out in our old red Ford console car, which was in the days when people just started car owning. So that would have been in the late 50s, early 60s with my dad and my mum and my sister. And then getting out into sort of Essex and there would be these huge flocks of lapwings coming off the plough fields. And it was one of the things my father, who was quite a naturalist himself, would always comment on the lapwings. I associate him with lapwings and yellowhammers. They were the birds which, you know, he pointed out and we'd see these birds were rising of hundreds and hundreds of them from the field. And so there's something there about conviviality, both with my mum and my dad in in our little car and the huge flocks of birds, of course, which have largely gone now. And I'm very lucky to be in a place where there's many lapwings nesting around here. They bring hope, don't they? They bring in the spring, they bring that renewal because they're the first birds to arrive here, late February, early March. So Mark Cocker calls lapwing the hymn to the Neolithic, which I rather like, the hymn to the Neolithic, (laughs) because, of course, when our land was largely forested, there wouldn't have been lapwing. So when our Neolithic ancestors came and felled the trees for the first agriculture and the first grazing animals, that's when the lapwings came. So they're a result of the felling of the trees on the land around here. The other reason I chose the lapwing was because, yeah, more than 10 years ago, I, I decide, I made a pledge myself. I have a little place, a kind of little sacred burn, a little stream that runs through the North Pennines. I made a, a pledge, this is when I was living in Newcastle, that I would spend 24 hours there once a month for every month of the year. And I did this for about four years. I'm not saying I didn't miss the odd month, but I was there in January and February and snow and floods. And the lapwing was one of the birds of the moors around there. The, they were a bit lower down and there was the curlews and the peewit. I did my first project with a storyteller friend called Nick Hennessy, where we spent our entire year there and we told the stories of the land. And the stories included the stories of the creatures, the stories of the people, the stories of the ancient monuments, 
the bits of archaeology and we kind of pieced these stories together into a performance. It was a bit of a clunky performance in, in the end, but actually what was important was the actual time spent looking, investigating the stories of this place. And the peewit and its song was um, one of those birds whom we storied. And it was definitely, it's him, it's song, who's with us. Fantastic. There's a lot of stories about lapwings, actually, isn't there? And a lot of sort of history behind them. I didn't realise, and you mentioned Mark Cocker there, and I'm finding that I'm using his wonderful book, Birds Britannica, quite a lot to help me research for these recordings. And lapwing or plover had been used in the 17th, 18th century as a, a term to apply to a, a deceitful person because Ooh. of their habit of dragging their wing, you know, or, or trying to distraction technique that they do to distract predators away from their young and from the nest. And the plover was a word used back then to describe somebody who was deceitful. Yes, less, I do remember that. Less yeah, than yeah. honest, you know, and I didn't know that before. Yes, but, I've been watching them here last spring, last April, when they had their babies. And there's something very beautiful, because I allowed myself in lockdown to spend hours sitting in a field. At first I felt guilty saying you should be doing something and then I said no you don't feel guilty because you are doing something. You're sitting in a field and watching the adult bird standing there with its crest up and there in the grass roundabout would be four or five babies and it would just stand there still and they would go off and they would be scurrying all over the place and as soon as one of one of them got a little bit too far away, it would make a particular call and it was like it was on a little spring. <laughs> and she'd just sit there or he, I don't know if it's he or she, just like invisibly holding on to these children that were around her. There's always jackdaws around them. I'd just be praying. They're so vulnerable. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I can imagine your anxiety there sitting in your field, protecting those little babies as well. The stunning bird, you know, the colours, so when you properly take a look at them on a, on a sunny day, you know, that green, sort of purpley, like a starling, you know, underappreciated maybe by a lot of people. You know, if you do take time to stop and look at them, they're, they're definitely one of the most attractive waders that we have. They're beautiful birds. Oh. And then that crazy call, which as a kid always used to remind me of Star Wars, you know, the pew pew kind of laser yeah. cannon sort of yeah. sound that they make. They're wonderful birds. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> My third choice is the willow warbler. And it was funny when I was choosing these birds, I was thinking I've not chosen very dramatic birds. There's no, there's no birds of prey or owls or these are all sort of fairly modest little fellows, apart from one, I suppose. And the willow warbler, oh my God, the willow warbler. I, I associate this with the little willow warbler with being up in the north here. You know, I was brought up in the south. I came up here about 35 years ago to live in the northeast. And for many years, I worked at the Rising Sun Country Park, just on the edge of Newcastle, Wallsend, where I was the manager. And I used to lead dawn chorus walk and you could guarantee you would have yeah, that, that. <laughs> that song coming from the bushes there and you'd have your little band of people it would be half past four in the morning and it'd just be getting light and everybody's a bit cold and then this little this little cascade of sound would coming from the bushes and it just warm your heart and everybody knew that it was actually okay that the world was okay because this little lump of 
golden energy, this bit of light had just arrived from Africa. And there it was singing its wee song, such a beautiful song and common, but also rare in its vibrant specialness. There's a rarity in its commonness. And I, I so much appreciate that little bird coming and blessing us flying across the Sahara Desert, arriving in tens of thousands on our shores. You know, we hear the chiff-chaff, but it's the next, it's the first really beautiful migrant song of spring for me. And that place, you know, I said where I went camping once a month, that was full of willow warblers. They were everywhere. That song is has a particular resonance for me because of its association with Africa. In my 20s, I, I went to Cameroon as a bit of a, an experiment going out into the world and I ended up getting a job as a headmaster of a, of a little school. I, and I, I was supposed to be there for three months. I ended up being there nearly four years. And I ended up making friends with a Cameroonian guy who started an eco-village in the northwest of Cameroon in a place called Bafut. And this eco-village was an inspirational place. And I ended up forming a little charity to help fund his eco-village. And I was there, I think it was 2016, 17. It was March. And I was on a visit and they created this beautiful centre out of naturally built earth and thatch. Oh, it was exquisite buildings. And it was a place for the community to come and practice sustainable farming and culture. It was a wonderful place. And I was there one morning in March. We're waiting for the rains to come. And I was trying to spot a sunbird because there's so many different kinds of sunbirds with their vibrant colours. And I was completely floored because from the top of a mango tree came the song of a willow warbler. What? <laughs> it's like, in Cameroon, a willow warbler singing. And there it was, clear as anything. <laughs> the top of a mango tree. <laughs> and uh, so that, there's been a, that, created this connection between this other country that I love and I have many very good friends there and of course this place here and um, Willow Warbler bringing its song from one place to the next and actually it's very funny because I noticed when I looked around that in March in that place half the birds were migrants they were wind chats tree pipits and I even saw a wryneck all waiting to cross the Sahara mid-March Birds that we think are so quintessentially British, of course they're not. They, they visit us for a short time, but they're, they're somebody yeah. else's when they're not here. Yeah. Fantastic. And, it, and it's amazing just thinking of a little thing like this big about to take off, singing its song before it crosses 2,000 miles of desert. How it does oh. that is a miracle to gladden our hearts. I, I, I totally agree. I think willow warblers get, get overlooked. People recognise the call of the chiff-chaff, you know, much more readily. And it's it's the first recognisable song, really, I guess, for, for most casual bird lovers. And then, yeah, the willow warbler comes a couple of weeks later, maybe. And yeah, by then, people are into spring and maybe overlooking it. And I'm always puzzled as to why, when it's got such a lovely song, 
yet the BBC and other, you know, drama showmakers seem intent on still using that one recording of the chiff chaff over and over again in the background when they could pick something so much more melodious. <laughs> and it doesn't do that migration. It hasn't brought the sun of Africa, does it? Because the chiff chaff, some of them winter here. They maybe go to North Africa. I don't think they they fly the Sahara like the willow warbler. Ah, right, yeah. Which is why they can sing earlier. Yeah, good point. Okay, let's move on, and we'll now <laughs> talk about your fourth choice. Bird number four. Fourth choice is uh, Manx Shearwater. Oh gosh. Going way back, I've had a complete love of Ireland since being a little boy. And I remember at the age of 11 or 12, going to Skoma Island with my friend and staying in this old barn. And there was just the two of us. And we got the mist came in and we couldn't get off the island. And we were just stuck there with the warden giving us food. And going out one night and not really knowing, being prepared for this weird noise. (laughs) (laughs) and this everywhere this extraordinary sound and these birds clipping your ears as they come flying in off the sea and we had no idea what they were eventually found out these were these were manchu waters and they have taken me so many amazing places so when I was at university, we had to do from my third year undergraduate a project, a research project. And so I decided where I wanted to go before, before I, what I was going to do. Uh, so I went with a friend to an island off the coast of Iceland called Eslide, which is an uninhabited bit of rock a quarter of a mile by half a mile. And we went there to study leeches, forktailed petrels. So there we were on this island and we slept during the day. And then as it got dark, we woke up and uh, we would wait. And the first birds to arrive from the sea were the, the leeches petrels. And they'd come flying over the land, these Thousands of petrels fluttering over their burrows with this extraordinary call. And then would come the the stormy petrels, which are more monosyllabic. (laughs) And then would come the the shearwater. And so nighttime on that island was was like some kind of railway station. So noisy. It was just a cacophony of sound. And so we studied these birds and I ended up making a show about shearwaters, not about the, the petrels, but, but about the shearwater inspired by the time on the island. And there's something about the shearwater. And I the other one of the the other bird that I would have really liked to have chosen but chose not to was a was a nightjar. And there's something about these nocturnal birds which kind of invite you into their world. They're saying, I dare you, step <laughs> into my world. And there's an extraordinary poem by Ted Hughes called The Roebuck, which is when he catches the eyes of a roebuck in the headlights of his car. And for a moment, the roebuck says, enter, walk through the veil. And the night giant and the sheer water, they both do this. You hear them 
They're so otherworldly. They're so mysterious. And yet at the same time, they're so utterly us. They're both us and not us at the same time. And there's a kind of invitation in that call, in that wild call to step over from your humanness, from your isolated humanness to become a glorious part of the world. And so I very much get that from that invitation into their wildness, into their beauty, into their intelligence, their extraordinary intelligence. You know, these birds live for 40 years. They have the same mate for 40 years if they both survive. They only have one egg a year. And they spend four months raising one egg. It's a long time in a little burrow, and they go to the same burrow every year. They're, they're remarkably extraordinary creatures. They can only come into land at night because they're so vulnerable. Their feet are so far back on their bodies, they can't walk properly. And so if they get caught on the land by a gull or a skewer or a raven, they're, they're gone, toast, you know. And so I put together this show on the Shearwater with my friend Tim Dowling, who's a musician and a theatre man. And we, our Shearwater show took us to, to Sky. We went to Skoma. We went to Rum. We went to the Shetlands. We went to half a dozen, maybe a dozen islands on Orkney doing this show. So I owe a debt of gratitude to Shearwater for taking me to some extraordinary places and also for working with an extraordinary man, Tim Dowling. He's an amazing musician performer. So the Shearwater is a bird of remarkable resilience and mystery. Interesting that you went with the show to the sites where people would connect with that bird. And, and obviously it, it is restricted now to a few sites on this, you know, the the very northern parts of Scotland or a couple of sites on the, on the west. So yeah, it's great that you, you took it to those places. But these are places where back in the day, a long time ago, they were harvested for food because the, the chicks were so, you know, like you say, a very, very long incubation period, very long time, the chicks in the burrows getting all fattened up. And they were a, an amazing source of food for people in remote places. And and I believe as well that they were actually used in, as currency in, in some places. Shear waters were traded for other things. I mean, it, incredible. They had a Amazing names. They were called Cockalolly and Cockasuti. Yes, they were. You're quite right. It was currency. People paid their rent in them, I think, on the island of Man. Yeah. And of course, the baby, the adults leave the baby in the nest before it, it can fly. So it sits there for about two weeks on its own in the nest. A great big fat thing that couldn't get out of the burrow if it wanted to until its feathers have roamed it's fully been its kind of flying plumage and then it crawls out of the burrow in the middle of the night and flies to Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Incredible birds. And and like you say, you mentioned the sounds there. And I think a lot of these birds that burrow at night, you know, petrels and shear waters make this, you, you described as otherworldly. And it does strike, you know, fear into the heart of people, doesn't it? Sometimes when they, when they hear that and they don't know what it is, there's all these legends about Vikings hearing those kind of noises and being deterred from invading because they assumed that, you know, that sound was being made by some horrendous army of man-eating ravens or, or whatever. But an incredible Incredible, very strange sound that you don't normally associate with birds. The hill, the biggest hill on the island of Rum is called Trolleval, 
which means the hill of the trolls. It was given by the Viking invaders because this noise was so scary. They thought it was a troll. Brilliant. So we'll move on. And I think we're on to your, your final bird. So let's talk about your fifth choice, bird number five. Bird number five. Fifth bird is the cuckoo. From my childhood, I, I, I don't know if you had that rhyme, you know, the rhyme that every kid knew then, which was April come she will, May she'll sing all day, June she'll change her tune, July she's ready to fly, and August the way she must. And of course, it's wrong because she doesn't go cuckoo. And it's very unlikely the cuckoo stay till August anyway. Most of them are gone by the end of June. Yeah, I chose the cuckoo. Well, I I read uh, Mike McCarthy, Michael McCarthy's book, Say Goodbye to the Cuckoo, which was a very beautiful book I really recommend. And um, he's basically taken a dozen birds and interviewed people about their associations with them. And many of the birds are declining, like the cuckoo and the spotted flycatcher. I read that and I thought, gee, this is tragic. This bird, this cuckoo, which in my youth was unthinkable that not everybody would know its song in one generation is now not known by the vast majority of people and in fact when i was working at the rising sun country park um, we had two cuckoos there singing in the country park in the 80s and early 90s and then they disappeared by mid the mid 90s they've gone and um, i hardly noticed that they'd gone but there was a kind of hole in the place where they had once been. And it was a few years later that I went into a primary school on the edge of the rising sun and played a cuckoo song. And not a single child knew who what it was. You know, when I was that age, when I was nine or ten or whatever those kids were, to not know what a cuckoo was would be unthinkable. When I was brought up in London, how has that changed? So that was the spur to create this show about the cuckoo. And originally, I was going to do it with Tim, Tim Dalling, who I'd done the Shearwater show with. And then he got offered a proper job in the theatre in London. <laughs> that actually paid his mortgage, you know. So um, it was actually quite good for me because it ended up, I asked my son, who's also a musician, to do the show with me. And, and it meant that we, not that one is better than the other, but it was a great way for us to get to know each other, you know, to, to work together. It was a beautiful thing. And, and, you know, the cuckoo really has offered us a chance to really get to know each other and tour around the place as father and son. When we decided to do the show about the cuckoo, I contacted the BTO and asked them if I could be part of putting a satellite tag on a cuckoo's back. And that was arranged. And so I went early one morning, four o'clock in the morning, to Filingdale's early warning station with a bunch of uh, BTO scientists. And we caught a cuckoo and put this, this kind of aerial on its back. And I remember feeling quite uncomfortable about strapping a bit of technology to this pulsing, beautiful creature with these golden eyes and thinking, how can it survive this journey? This little rucksack. And then the Chris, who was doing the research, you know, he was painstakingly careful about putting a little rucksack on the bird. And, you know, it seems that they they can manage. And, and, and I have to say that that was one of the most remarkable wildlife experiences with looking at my laptop and seeing where Vigilamus, my cuckoo, was 
in a kind of cyber sort of way, flying with it and seeing where it rested. You know, it stayed in the south of France for nearly a month, presumably feeding up. And somehow it knew it was going to cross the Sahara Desert. It had to eat a lot of caterpillars in the south of France. And then taking off from the south of France and with a brief stop in northern Libya, it went straight over the Sahara Desert, five kilometers high. Three days, three nights without food or water. This lone traveler up there in the, amongst the stars. You know, there's thousands of millions of birds that do this. But having this signal coming back in kind of real time was like, my goodness, there it is. There he is. He's doing that journey he has to do. He has to fly to the Congo base. And it was very moving and it really made me think about migration. The BTO sponsored myself and a photographer, journalist, to go to Gabon to see if we could find our cuckoo. <laughs> we never saw a cuckoo. <laughs> and there's something about the cuckoo. It has um, a divinity about it. It's when it flies, I feel like it's almost like a godlike bird. There's something very particular about it. It has a particular flight. And it's seldom still moving, calling. And of course, it creates so much controversy. We lay our own stuff on the cuckoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got that. They've got that reputation of being terrible parents. They just come here, dump their eggs, and nick off, and you know, leave yeah. somebody else to deal with it and bring up the young and all of that. So they've got all those negative connotations, but incredible incredible birds i had the honor of being asked by the bto a few years ago to name a cuckoo that had been tagged and i named him mr conkers and i don't to, <laughs> to this day remember why other than it tickled me and I, I did the same i followed him online and saw where he was and you know he did get all the way to africa and then stopped transmitting so i don't know whether the tag failed or whether he managed to sort of squeeze himself out of that backpack i like to think that it just came off rather than he didn't make it. It's it's an incredible thing, you know, satellite tagging and having that connection um, yes. to a bird and learning all that science as well. It's, it's fabulous. Oh, I remember Mr. Conkers. <laughs> <laughs> he was mine. <laughs> ah, he was yours. Wow. <laughs> well, there's, there's a hundred folk tales about cuckoos. I mean, the cuckoo must be the bird which is most woven into culture. Every single country in the Northern Hemisphere has songs and stories and poems about cuckoos. But in some places, they didn't plant their crops. They didn't sow their seeds until they heard the first cuckoo. It actually, the timing of their farming year was around the cuckoo. There's so many divinations of um, predictions of the future around how many times a cuckoo calls. If you've got money in your pocket and you hear it sing like 30 times, your money's going to be multiplied 30-fold and tell you how many years you're going to live. It will tell you so many different things. So it's absolutely networked into most cultures. Oh, so many stories. The one I wanted to just share a little bit was um, about the cuckoo. The, there was a moment in time when the creatures had to decide whether they were going to live on the mortal earth or they were going to live again in Tirunanog in the heavens. And we know the ones that decided to live on the mortal earth because we see them. The other creatures decided to live in Tiananmo, but the cuckoo couldn't make up her mind. And she asked the gods if she could live in both 
hear none of, and the mortal earth. And the gods said there's three conditions. Firstly, you'll never have a home. You'll never have a nest of your own. The second one is you'll never see your children. And the cuckoo didn't like this. And he said, what's the third one? And the third one, the god said, you'll be taking messages from the heaven, the mortal earth, back again. And so the cuckoo is seen as a messenger between us and the heaven. Fantastic. And suffering badly, you know, numbers are down 68%, I believe, as the last sort of figure from the BTO. Talking about it, obviously bringing the, the spring. And I think, like you say, it has fallen away, particularly with younger generations, as something that people know about. And I'm sure it's even worse now than it was, you know, when you were working at the country park. But a few years ago now, about 10 years ago, we were having our bathroom refitted here. And we just bought this house and we had a lovely chap called Bob, Bob the Builder, and he was in doing our bathroom for us just completely on his own. And I, I heard him one day phoning his wife. I think it was either one or two o'clock just afterwards. And he was on the phone and he was going, Brenda, I've heard it again. I've, I've heard the cuckoo again. It's, <laughs> it's the earliest we've ever had. And it was sort of like the third week in February. And he was incredulous that he'd heard this cuckoo the day before. And then he'd heard it again. And then I realized in our basement, I had, somebody had bought me a gift one time and it was a clock, a wall clock. And there was a bird call for every hour and it was a different bird. And the one o'clock bird was a cuckoo. And it was this that he was hearing, convinced that he'd heard the, his first cuckoo, the earliest ever. So there are still people who do that and, and think of, you know, the first cuckoo call is bringing that message. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we actually had a cuckoo singing um, not far from here this spring i can you know i know how to call it you know with the so i i called i did the the cuckoo call and and he came right up to me circled around my head <laughs> so that was nice that was a bit of a treat to see him. yeah when you when you're getting acknowledged by a, an incredible creature like that yeah that connection's fantastic and I, I did say i might play you this song i don't know if you want to hear it yeah, please. Yeah, fantastic. But it's in a beautiful song. It's a poem written by, I don't know if you know Linda Franz. No. She's a local Northumbrian poet. And she wrote this poem for our show about the cuckoo. And Josh put the poem to music, two-minute evocation of the cuckoo. Inside the cuckoo's call, the ear of spring. Inside the ear of spring, the swaying reeds. Inside the swaying reeds, the warbler's nest. Inside the warbler's nest, a cuckoo's egg. Inside the cuckoo's egg, the eye of gold. Inside the eye of gold, the tug of the sun. Inside the tug of the sun, the bird's wings. Cuckoo, cuckoo, calling over and over. Inside the bird's wings, 5,000 miles. Inside 5,000 miles, the vast Sahara. 
Inside the vast Sahara African sun Inside the African sun A hunger for young Inside the hunger for young Earth greening Inside the earth greening The heart sap Inside the heart sap The cuckoo calling Cuckoo, cuckoo calling over and over Cuckoo, cuckoo over and over Well, Malcolm, you've told some wonderful tales there of your five favourite birds, but sadly, one must be chosen. One bird to rule them all, one to go up against the fastest and the deadliest bird in the world, my mighty peregrine and its golden grenades of death. So... Which bird are you going to choose? I'm going to choose the red star. Okay, well... I think, you know, the way that you've talked about the Red Start earlier and how important it is to you. And I think having read Birds in a Cage as well, I think a lot of people could maybe relate to that, seeing birds through their window and dreaming of being free again. I think it would be extremely unfair of me to say that a peregrine <laughs> is better than a Red Start. So I'm going to declare that this week's winner of Golden Grenades is Malcolm's Red Start. Well, thanks so much, Malcolm, for joining me today and sharing those stories. What have you got planned for the forthcoming year? Oh, who knows? Um, well, I'm certainly my little wood where the red star lives. I'm, I'm waiting for, to see the flickering red tail. Hopefully, sort of mid-April, that will come. And I'm looking forward to the first peewits arriving back. Uh, whether we'll ever perform again live, I have no idea. My son looks like he's he's going to go off to Ireland, so that for us to do that again, I don't, it might not happen. I mean, we were booked to do it for the BTO down in in Surrey, and I'd love it if we could do that, but we'll see. But I, yeah, I, I'm enjoying a bit of stillness and being present with the life that's all around here, watching it slowly change as the seasons roll by. You can go and sit in your field and look after those lapwing babies. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Malcolm. Thank you, Kit. Really enjoyed it. Well, that's all we have time for this week, folks. Please join me again next week when my special guest will be the wildlife storyteller and author of 30 Days Wild, Lucy McRobert. Until then, bye for now. Bye.